The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, if you would please. Today we're going to look at the end of this 22nd chapter, which is one of the most interesting of all the chapters that I think we've studied in the Gospel of Matthew. I like what Jesus does as he answers the questions that we've seen in chapter 22, and that is he very methodically and with perfect reasoning, with logic, he answers questions according to the scriptures. And so I like that method that he uses. Uh, logic is the science of the formal principles of reasoning. And for some reason, there are people who think that faith is a principle that excludes logic. And so when it comes to discussing Scripture, they don't very much want to talk about the logic of things. Well, it's certainly true that Scriptures transcend man's logic. But it's also true that there are certain propositions in the Scripture that we know to be true. And we can take those and we can build upon them to uh, come across other very important, true, logical propositions. And the scriptures follow a very logical pattern of reasoning so that whenever they don't make a statement implicitly, we can, we can discover uh, and deduce truths from certain information that were given. Jesus was a master of logic. And in the question that we're going to look at today, we'll see how that... Uh, Jesus' enemies, uh, he wanted to show them that logically speaking, that the Christ, the Messiah, has to be more than just a man. And in a few minutes, we're going to look at his enemies' thinking or their view about the Messiah, and we're going to show how that Jesus proved their reasoning to be wrong. Now, I want you to listen very carefully today, because uh, you, you really have to pay attention to this to understand the scriptures, how that Jesus used logic to refute the ideas of people like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and others who do not believe that Jesus is actually the eternal God. Now let's look at these scriptures in the end of the 22nd chapter, and I would ask you to stand with me once again as we look at, look at this. Matthew 22 and verse number 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and help, help me, Lord, as we look at this passage today to be, to be clear about it so that everyone understands how that we can know and show other people that you truly are the eternal God. Help us, Lord, with this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to look at the beginning of verse number 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together. And then you can look back at verse 15. It says, then went the Pharisees 
And in verse number 16, And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. And then verse number 23, The same day came to him the Sadducees. And then in verse 34, But when the Pharisees... And then again in our text in verse number 41, While the Pharisees... Now there you see the major religious and one of the political groups in Israel that confronted Jesus on this last Tuesday of his life. Now remember we're talking about the last week of Jesus' life. And these groups came to him asking him questions and their purpose was to stump him, to discredit him, uh, to prove that he had no authority to be there in this temple area where he was teaching had no authority to say what he said. Now, there are at least two questions that are asked in chapter 22 that are frivolous questions. They have no motive in them to find truth. They're simply asked in order to confuse Jesus if they could and try to entrap him. Then there was a third question that was asked, and we discussed this one last week, and at least it had a a modicum of seriousness to it because it afforded Jesus an opportunity to expound upon the greatest principle that you and I need to know, and that is the duty that we have to God to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And that kind of love produces the second greatest duty that we have, and that is to love others as ourselves. And Jesus said, on those two foundational truths hang all of the law and the prophets. And what Jesus did was to handle all of these questions that came to him in chapter 22 with ease, not needing to go to anyone to consult with them about the answers, but as quickly as these things were asked, Jesus in the divine mind who knows how to answer all questions answered what they wanted to know. But we come to this text today, and this time we see Jesus turning the tables on these people because now they're not asking a question. Jesus asks them a question, and the motive for doing it is different. They're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to confound him and mix him up, get him to say something that they could accuse him of of being wrong about. But Jesus never has a motive like that. He has a question that he asks in order to reveal to them truth, that if they would accept this, if they would believe this, then they would understand that he is their Savior and he could give them the gift of eternal life. These are people that had studied the Scriptures but they'd never look deeply enough into them to discover that their interpretations of their greatest hope was actually wrong. These were people that were looking for deliverance. They were waiting for their Messiah to come. They were waiting for a kingdom to begin. And you would think that after thousands of years of living in that hope, that they would know the answer to all of the questions about their Messiah. They looked into the Old Testament scriptures and read them over and over again. And you would think of all things that they would ever know, they would know about this one who had come to be their deliverer, to be their king, and there would be no questions that would be asked that they didn't know the answer to. And yet the answer to the most important question that they needed to know confused them. They didn't understand it. The cardinal question that comes to every person in humanity, they didn't know. And that question is, who is Jesus Christ? Who really is Jesus Christ? And none of the major groups knew that. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Herodians. 
Not the priest at the temple, not the scribes who were charged with recording the words of God and copying them from, from, from generation to generation. None of them knew the question that they were divinely charged with knowing, the one they should have known. Who is this Christ that comes? Who is this one? What, what is he like? What is he going to do? Who is this Christ? And none of them knew that. And if they had, they would not have crucified him. Now, the Apostle Paul said the same in 1 Corinthians 2. He said that we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the King of glory. A few weeks ago, I was speaking with Jorge, and he was telling me about a conversation that he had with a friend, I think maybe at work, And they got on to this subject, and Jorge told this man that if Jesus had come today, that we would do to him exactly what they did to him back when he appeared on earth. And you might say, why? Why would people ever do that? Well, it's the same reason that they did it then. People do not know who Jesus is. This is a very serious problem today. Now, for sure, there are many inventions of Jesus. There's a Jesus that's been constructed in people's minds that's far different from the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. And in fact, we're going to be talking about that for uh, next week and the week after that and the week after. You're going to see a very different Jesus than what most people suppose. Now, I always wonder about this because we have one historical record of who, of what Jesus said and what Jesus did, one historical record. So how is it that the ideas of who Jesus is is so completely different from what the historical record says? None of us would do that with any other person in history. We wouldn't do that with George Washington. We wouldn't do it with Abraham Lincoln. Or even going back to the ancients like Julius Caesar. There's a record of them, what they said, what they did. And we construct our knowledge of them by that record. And yet, when it comes to Jesus, things are different. You know, I, I scarcely believe that a child in, in school today, that if he had to give a report on George Washington, and he came up with something that was totally off the wall, something that historical record doesn't actually say then that student's not going to get an A. Well, with the revisionist history that's going on today, I might be wrong about that because you you can actually construct anything that you want about anybody and you can believe anything you want about any historical character because what's true for you is okay. But with Jesus, you can't look at him that way. But yet there are people who think that that, uh, Jesus is tolerant of everything, that Jesus was a non-judgmental person, that Jesus was such a lover of men that he would even go against the eternal commands of God in the Scripture. If you want to know what Jesus is to the religious and the secular world today, look at that, because he is not the Jesus of the Bible. Well, what we have here is a beginning that sets the record straight. Jesus uses logic, and that's foreign to most people. But he uses the infallible logic of Scripture, and Jesus asked a question that proves who he is. Now, let's look and see how he did that. Now, the first thing that he asked about was the sonship of the Christ. Jesus said, what think ye of Christ? Now, that's the first part of the question. What do you think of Christ? 
And I remind you that the New Testament was written in Greek. And this word Christ is the same that we find in the Old Testament Hebrew that's translated as Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same. And Christ means the anointed one. It refers to this promised deliverer that they'd read about in the Old Testament, the one who is the Messiah. So Jesus said, what think ye of Christ or what think ye of the Messiah? Peter gave an answer to that back in chapter 16. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, Matthew, 1, uh, uh, Matthew 16, 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And you'll notice there that Peter's answer included sonship. You are the son of the living God. And the next part of the question, Jesus includes that. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now folks, that to them was an easy question to answer. The Jews weren't stumped by that. From the very earliest ages, Jewish children had, had cut their teeth on this truth, on this proposition, that without hesitation they could say, whose son is he? Why, he is the son of David. Of course, the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, he is the son of David. The Messiah will come from the household of David. Now just consider Old Testament passages that tell us that. You go back to 2 Samuel, and God is actually speaking to David. Uh, he says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's speaking of the temple. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, you know that Bible history shows us that Solomon was David's son, that Solomon came and he sat on David's throne, and Solomon is the one who built the te temple that David couldn't build. But Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. And so that shows us that the person that this scripture is talking about that would sit on David's throne could not be Solomon. That's not the person that we're speaking of in that scripture. And so without even going any further, the scripture alone, that scripture alone is enough to show us that there is something supernatural about this person who's going to come to sit on David's throne. But the Jews weren't looking for anything supernatural. They missed one of the very earliest connections to the supernatural because they expected a political savior. They expected that a man would come with military might. They expected that here comes a man who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they never thought of him as supernatural. They thought he's just another man. He's just another king in the line of kings that comes from David. So he's going to be a man like David, either like David or greater than David, but he is going to be a man. And so their idea of who the Christ was didn't jive with what Peter said. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, well, flesh and blood didn't tell you about that. And what he meant was your Jewish schools did not tell you this, that the Messiah is going to be the Son of God. You didn't learn this from them. He said that you learned this from Heaven, from the Heavenly Father, He's the one that told this to you. God showed you that truth. And then there are other scriptures. 
Psalm 89 is one. In Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. In Psalm 89, 28 and 29, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And then in the 34th verse, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. And then speaking of the Messiah, in Isaiah we have that great passage that says of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then there's a passage in Ezekiel that I want to show you. Would you turn to the Old Testament for just a minute here to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 37. And what I'm doing here, I'm just giving you some representative scriptures. There are many, many more in the Old Testament. And you have to think that as the Jews read this and they thought about this Messiah that was coming, all of these scriptures that spoke of him must have been their favorites. So long living under oppression, so long having some other government rule over them that surely they must have thought these are our favorite scriptures to talk about this Messiah that's coming to rule over us. Now in Ezekiel 37, verse number 24, it says, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They also walk, shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now I hope that you'll recognize something here. And if you came to fundamentals class on Wednesday night, you're going to hear uh, the time frame for these things. Ezekiel was a prophet of God who lived about 400 years after David. Well, we notice here that he uses David in this scripture, and he talks about David having a kingdom that where the children of David are going to live forever and ever. David's going to be the prince forever. And we understand that when Ezekiel said David in that passage, he couldn't literally mean David, because none of them expected that David would be resurrected to come back to reign over Israel. So here we see that David and Messiah turn out to be synonymous terms, that David represents the Messiah, and that's why Ezekiel uses his name. So these are very closely related, David and the Messiah. Now the Messiah would be David's son. He would be a descendant of David. He would be in the direct line of kings that came from David. And so this is what they thought. This is not a hard question for them. Whose son is the Christ? They knew this. This is an easy thing. We understand it. We've read it. He is the son of David. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn back to the first chapter in Matthew, and the very first verse, what does the record here say? The gospel record of the life of Jesus Christ begins this way in Matthew 1, verse number 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
You know, you know that Matthew's the gospel of the kingdom. We've been studying it for years and years and years now. And we've looked at the kingdom language that Matthew continually uses. And so if this person, Jesus, is to be the Messiah, the first qualification that he must meet is that he is the son of David. He is descended from David. And do you know that the Jews never question his descent? Now, they never believed that God was his father, but they never questioned that he was descended from David. You know why? Because that's public record. Because the genealogy shows that. We have a genealogy of Christ from both Joseph and from Mary. Both of those come through the line of David. That is a public record that the Jews knew. And so they never questioned that he was actually the son of David. Now, importantly here, Jesus was the last in the line of the ones who would be kings that came from David. There are no more heirs to the throne after him. I mean, do you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus had any children? Well, of course you didn't. Jesus was never married. He never had any human descendants. He was the last in the line of the kings. Now, you look in the Old Testament and you'll find that there were many times that this line of the kings, the descendants of David, were miraculously preserved. There were times when it looked like the whole family line was going to be destroyed. But then God reached down and through some miracle of his divine providence, he saved somebody in that line so that it would come all the way down to Jesus. And so we're okay with that. The Jews admitted this. He's descended from David. You and I know this. He's descended from David. So they gave the right answer. He is David's son, The only problem is, it's not a complete answer. And so Jesus went on to show them that human descent is not enough for the Messiah. He must be more than just a man. And so the next question begins to bear it out. Secondly, we look at the superiority of the Christ. Verse number 43, And he saith unto them, How then... Doth David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? Maybe some of you would have a hard time answering this question, because it sounds very confusing to us. Now, here's one thing that I don't think that any of us would disagree with. You're, You're not going to find anybody who says that Jesus was not an extraordinary man. Even the, even the worst reprobates admit there was something very special about Jesus. Even the worst atheists have admitted that he was a very uncommon man. He just wasn't like everybody else. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was not a Christian, said this. He said, Jesus is the most perfect of all men that have ever appeared on the earth. And Emerson's quote is interesting because... He seems to have left room that there might be some possibility that some man might yet appear who would surpass Jesus. But that be as it may, is it good enough to say? Is it good enough to acknowledge Jesus as a good man? Well, truth be told, you can't acknowledge Jesus as either a good man or a great man You cannot acknowledge him as either if you do not acknowledge him as God. Now, I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis had something very important to say in his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he wrote. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying 
the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now today, you're not going to find any people that are against Jesus because of his character. You're not going to find anybody who's against Jesus because of sincerity. You won't find anybody against him because of his love and his compassion. And yet, when you say something about his deity, then all of a sudden people have all kinds of things against that. I've mentioned Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and many of the cults. They have a lot to say when it comes to whether Jesus is the eternal God. And there are a lot of people out there in the world today that have a lot to say when you say Jesus is deity because all they've ever looked at him is a great man. They may not even believe in God. They think he's a great man. But when you say that, you bring into question his character. And you bring into question his sincerity. And you bring into question his love. And you bring into question his honesty. Because no good person would ever tell lies like Jesus did if he was not God. No one would ever say that he was what he was and be a good person. If they don't believe that Jesus is God, he can't be a good person because he told so many lies. Now, in this question that Jesus asks, he doesn't give the option of saying he's merely a human descendant of David as the Jews thought the Messiah would be. And this question is posed to bring out a deeper truth that he must be more than just a man. They answered, he is the son of David. And remember, the chief priests and the scribes complained when the people used that terminology, son of David, as they applied it to the Messiah. Uh, They were okay with saying that he is a son of David if he's just a mere descendant of him. But don't use that term about him, the son of David, in connection to the Messiah. Now, what, what they were concerned about is that the people would give him too much credit. But what Jesus is about to show them, that Son of God was too little to say about him. That's not enough credit. They'd not yet arrived at Peter's statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus took them to the 110th Psalm. Now I want you to turn there, if you would, Psalm 110. And you might want to familiarize yourself with this because this is the most quoted psalm, the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. Used many times throughout New Testament scripture. Now as you get there, you'll notice that the heading of this psalm reads, A Psalm of David. Now what you need to know about that heading is that the heading is not inspired. What comes after that are the inspired words of God. The heading is not inspired. But what it does show us is that the Jews, long before Jesus ever said that David said this, they believed that. 
they accredited this psalm to David. They said he wrote it. So they have no problem with David's authorship. And of course, we have confirmation that David wrote the psalm because that honest and good man, Jesus, said that he did. In the parallel passage of Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So two things are very important, and you have to get this, so we get the logic here of what Jesus is saying. Two things are very important. One is that David said it. David said it. That's important. And he said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says in our text that David was in the Spirit, he doesn't mean that David was just thinking about things, and David had this, this experience, and David was in his own spirit as he said this, but it was the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write these words. And by the way, that's the way we got all of the Bible. It's all inspired by God. God breathed. And you can look that up in 2 Timothy 3.16. And it'll tell you there that all scriptures are inspired by God. Now let's look at the quotation here. Psalm 110 verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, you notice something right away, that there are two lords in this passage. And so Jesus is talking about a conversation that took place between two lords. And you see that the first lord is in all capital letters. And that's the way that the King James translators let us know that this word is translated from the Hebrew word that we say Yahweh or Jehovah, we say now. And in case you're interested in this, the name Jehovah is made by substituting the vowels of Yahweh, uh, substituting the vowels of of Adonai and Elohim into the Tetragrammaton. And I don't have time to tell you what that's all about. You can ask me about that later. But that's how how it came about. So this is the word that's translated from Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is the name that is so sacred that the Jews would never even pronounce it. So really... If you looked at this in the Hebrew, we have a guess as to how they said it. No one actually knows how to pronounce that. And we've come up with Yahweh because Hebrew has no vowels. But we've come up with Yahweh. The Jews wouldn't pronounce it, but we've come up with that, and we think that's the closest that it is. Now, the second Lord, you'll notice, has just the first letter capitalized, and then it's followed by lowercase letters. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. That also means Lord. And as I said just a moment ago, that, that this, this name uh, Jehovah is taken by taking the vowels. Since you don't have vowels in the Hebrew, they took the vowels out of, out of Adonai, the word that they would pronounce, and the word Elohim, which also means God, and they put that into one form and made that Jehovah. So this is a conversation that takes place between two lords, And this is a conversation between the covenant-keeping God and the Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Now notice that the second Lord is told to sit at the right hand of the first Lord. And that's very important, because at that time, sitting at the right hand was the reception of that person into the sovereignty and the dominion of the one who sits on the throne. 
As Lewis Johnson wrote, to sit at the right hand in oriental thought referred to the reception into the dignity and sovereignty and dominion of the one on the throne so that the person who was invited to sit at the right hand of the king was one who was received into the dignity of the throne itself. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the one that David called Lord was considered to be divine, that he's speaking of God. So the one that David calls Lord is a divine person. He is an eternal person. Now we see that in verse number 4. If you look at Psalm 110, verse number 4, the Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first Lord says to the second Lord, you are a priest forever. That speaks to his eternality. Now notice it also says that he's to sit there at the right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. There is no way today that I can tell you all the imagery that's contained in this passage of Scripture. I mean, this is like a whirlwind tour through the Bible. It's why it's so important to study the Word of God and to see where it's taking us and how it's all interconnected. But when it talks about sitting at the right hand until enemies are made the footstool, we have to go all the way back to the book of Joshua. And when Joshua conquered the Canaanite kings as Israel came in to take over the promised land. And there were five kings that Joshua conquered. There were many more, but in this particular passage, there are five kings that Joshua conquered. And he told the people to bring those kings out. And he said for his captains to put their feet on the neck of those five kings. And putting their feet on the neck of the kings was symbolic that God was going to put all of their enemies beneath their feet. That God was going to enable them to conquer all of those enemies. Now here, we're looking at this comparison about what it says about Jesus Christ. And it says the same thing about him. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he shall put, for he hath put all things under his feet. Well, now we're getting to the key of why Jesus used this passage. And here it is, that David would never call anyone Lord who was beneath him. David called him Lord because he is superior. That the person who would sit on his throne and would reign forever is divine. Now, David is human. David was a human. The Christ is both human and divine. And so by setting forth this logic that David would defer to another calling him Lord, Jesus established that the Jewish idea of the Messiah as being a political savior was not high enough. That's too low an estimation of him. He must be more than that. So he showed them the superiority of Christ over David. Now then also, number three today, is the sovereignty of the Christ. Now the Jewish leaders had told the people, don't call him the son of David, at least not in messianic terms. Descendant of David, that's okay. They couldn't dispute the genealogy. So Jesus took them to this psalm, and he proved rightfully that he is the son of David, 
And he's called the son of David as the sovereign Lord because he's been placed in a position of ruling authority. He's at the right hand. He is divine. And that qualifies him to be the eternal heir and occupant of the throne of David. Now let's look at another statement that's made in Psalm 110. Now again, it's such an important psalm. Christ and the apostles refer to this often. Look at verse number 3. And I'm going to sidetrack us just a little bit if you don't, if you don't mind. I want to sidetrack just a little bit in this third verse. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Now I think there are a lot of preachers that wish that this verse was not here. We hear so much today about the free will of man. We're even told that God would never never interfere with a person's free will. But I want you to know something, that if God didn't interfere with your will, you would never come to Christ. It's not in the natural heart of man to ever come to Christ. Don't think that your free will is going to lead you to him because your will is depraved. This is what the book of John says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, listen, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are all encumbered with a will that is depraved, a conscience that is depraved, a conscience that's wicked and defiled and is against God. And we will never be willing to come to him if all that we ever do is look inwardly. And so when do God's people become willing? It is in the day of his power. Now you need to know that because in the, in the knowledge of that, it shows you that Jesus is more than just the king of the universe, that you need to personalize this, that he is the one who is the king and the Lord over you. He's the one who has sovereign power over you. And in salvation, he conquers your will. God changes your will to cause you to become willing. And so how do we know when a person is truly born of God? It's because he submits to the salvation to Jesus Christ as Savior and as his Lord. Now David said he's Lord. David called him the Lord. And the Bible says, you know the Bible says, you must confess that Jesus is Lord and then you will be saved. So there is no one who naturally says Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12:3 says, "Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost." And what I'm telling you today, if you're sitting here today and you think that well, okay, well someday when I get all ready to do it, I'm going to come to Christ and maybe before I'll die when when I've had all my fun and I've lived myself up, I'm going to come to Christ and everything's going to be all right and I'm going to receive him as my savior. And I'm here to tell you right now, you don't have the ability to say when that's going to happen because you're not the one who can make the choice of when it's going to happen. And so when God speaks to a person through the power of the Holy Spirit, he brings that person to the, to the place where he becomes willing to say, Lord, you're all for me. I take you as my Savior. And if he doesn't do that, you'll stay in your sin. You have no power over this. And yet the Bible still says that every person who will believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. The only way you recognize it is by the Holy Spirit. And when he shows you, you will submit to his sovereignty. 
Now, in the Philippian passage, it says that all in heaven would admit his lordship. Now, those that are in heaven, they've done that willingly. But it also says that those that are under the earth will bow to him. You know what it's talking about there? It's speaking about those that are in hell. It's speaking about demons that have been crushed in hell and men who have been condemned to hell and they will bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ unwillingly. But they will bow. And I'm telling you, it's better to do it now and be in heaven than to do it later and be in hell. So Jesus is the sovereign Lord and this question is posed to bring out this truth. You see, it's not enough for you to go along with the apathetic, unbelieving crowd that says that Jesus is a good man. He didn't give you that option. You can't call him a good man without calling him Lord. He won't accept that nonsense. So he is your sovereign and your Lord, or as C.S. Lewis said, he's a lunatic, a crazy man. The question is, which do you believe about him? Just, Just who is he? What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? If David called him Lord, how is he his son? And the answer is that David called him Lord because he's more than just a man. He is God. Now, before I make the final point on your listening sheet today, I want to show you two more scriptures that prove the eternality of Christ in relation to David. Only God's eternal. I mean, I think we'll all agree with that. Only God can be the eternal one. Only him. Now, listen to Isaiah 1, verse 11, verse number 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And then in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So a branch, it says, will grow out of the root of Jesse. Now that branch, it's talking about Christ. And of course, Jesse is David's father. So the passage here is looking beyond David to a far off time in the future when there will be a kingdom in which Christ rules the whole world. The branch will rule the world. Now listen to what Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. He said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So Jesus is the root of David. That means that David came from him. And Jesus is the offspring of David, which means that he came from David. Now there's the conundrum. Same one that we find in Matthew. How is he David's son and David calls him Lord? And that is a very perplexing problem unless we admit this, that Jesus Christ pre-existed as God. Not as others say, Not as others say that he came into existence, but he pre-existed as God before he ever came to this earth, and then he was born as a man. And so he was both God and man. And that makes this Christ different from all other people that have ever lived on the planet earth. He was a good man. Oh, he was. But calling him good is not enough. It's not good enough. He is also the sovereign God. Now finally, number four, is the silence of the critics. And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Nobody answered him. Now they were all eager to ask him questions before, but they are none too eager to answer what he had to say. Now think about this for a moment. What, what is the theme 
of these several scriptures that we've been studying for these past few weeks. And if you haven't put it together and don't remember, I'll help you with it. We go back to Matthew 21 and verse number 23. And when Jesus was come into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And here we find Jesus finally getting to the answer to that question. Where did he get his authority? He is God. Now I'd like to see the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses wrestle with these questions. The Mormons say that Jesus was the spirit brother of Satan. And the Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was a created being, this angel called Michael. But Jesus said, I am neither. I am God. And so he took the 110th Psalm and he showed that here is a record that speaks differently of him. He has been received into the dignity, the sovereignty, and the dominion of the one who's on the throne. David called him Lord because he is God. So what I'm telling you today, stay away from the cults. Stay away from anyone who ever questions the divinity of Jesus Christ. Stay away from anyone who tells you that he's not Jehovah God that we find in the Old Testament. Not the same God who spoke to Abraham and spoke to Isaac and to Jacob and spoke to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He's God. And what's going to happen is that all these people are going to stand before God... And they're going to realize the answer to this question. All their mouths will be stopped. They're not going to be able to ask God any questions, but they're going to see who Jesus is. They will answer him not a word. And this is what these people did. Jesus showed them by the logic of the Scripture that he's God. And he also showed they have no authority themselves. They are no interpreters of the Word of God. Now the question for you today is what do you say to the cardinal question? Do you know how to answer this? And more importantly, do you know how to answer it correctly? How, how, how do you answer the question? If you make up a Jesus in your own mind who's not what the Scripture has to say about him, then you are headed for a devil's hell. I'm sorry to tell you that, but you have to know the Jesus of the Bible and believe him for what he said and what he did and who he is. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there is no substitute for that. There is no other way to heaven but him. That's it. And you have to know him. And he is the one who is manhood and deity in one, a holy and a righteous man for sure. But also, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God. You must receive him as God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power that we find in your word. The truths of Jesus brought out here, the truths of the Word brought out here in such great logic by Jesus Christ. How can he be just a man? How could he be just a man when the Scriptures say so much different about him and proves that he is Lord God Almighty? I pray that you would speak to someone's heart today. Maybe there's someone wrestling with this question and they, they've never really thought about this much, about why Jesus must be God and, and how the Bible proves that he is God. And there is so much said in Scripture that tells us without doubt that he is the Jehovah God that we read about in the Old Testament who came to this earth as a man and gave his life in sacrifice for sins.
and that all who trust in his name may know the power of the life that he can give. Lord, speak to someone today and show them that truth. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.